Okay. Usually I first review the class before I give it. This was reviewed last week, so we can figure it out together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Try and remember what we're talking about. Okay. I have a note, fortunately, that says we're up to here. So that part, I, I didn't have to rediscover. Okay. Um, <coughs> the topic that we're on is this Nehalelcha. Oh, sorry, I got the wrong sitter here, too. Um, it's still going to be a different sitter. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a bad sitter. It's just to be the one that I took with me always to travel, because it, it exactly fits the pocket of that purse. But usually I have my other one. Okay, so I th- it seems to me that last week, what we spoke about was um, that that Hashem is praised through the words of his Hasidim and Avodim and David HaMelech. So we talked about the choosing specifically of, of the words of the righteous people who came before us. Um, and we spoke about this very interesting idea from the Kotzker about this idea of what is a Chassid, that Hashem is praised or glorified the Lashon Chassidov through the tongue like through the words of those who are Hasidim. So he said Hasidim doesn't mean people who follow like a Hasidish Rebbe, although nowadays it does. Good morning. Um, but that uh, the way that Rav Tzaddik said it was that a person who's a Hasid is someone who has managed to separate himself from Kina, Taiva, and Kavod, which are these three midos that separate a person out of the world. So this kind of, I guess, connects them more to the world. And then using... Uh, some things from Rav Hirsch. Remember, we talked about how, what the opposites of Kinnataiv and Kavod are, according to Rav Tzadok. Okay. So today's focus is more on this idea of Hallel. Um, Hashem is Mehulal Bifi Amo. Excuse me. And Uvashiri David Avdecha, and through the songs of David, your servant, Nehalelcha. So there's a goal over here somehow where Hashem is Mehulal. So that's, ref- that's happening to him, that he is mehulal. And what, the action that we are taking is nehalelcha. We are halaling him, so to speak. Um, and early in the beginning of Sukkot Zimra, we talked about the idea that halal is from a word meaning light reflection. So the light bounces off. So Hashem is sent, is acting toward us and interacting toward us and creating things that are happening in the world, in the universe, in history, in our lives. And the halal is when we then speak out and describe what he has done and praise him with it, then it's called halal. So we have, uh, we left Mitzrayim and we have a halal and we say that, right? And we describe in detail. So we have the idea of a sudas hoda. If something has happened to somebody and they were saved, then it's really a mitzvah to relate that over and to tell people, here's what Hashem did for me. Okay, that's all a kind of halal. So Rav Hirsch says about halal, he says, the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, the men of the great assembly who are described by the Gemara as 120 uh, very righteous, wise leaders, they were a period of time, they were not all leaders concurrently. So this was, Anshe Knesset Zagadola is a name for the Sanhedrin, roughly from the time of Mordechai. Mordechai was probably one of the early members of the Anshe Knesset Zagadola. And Shimon Hatzadik, who's the one who met Alexander the Great. Shimon Hatzadik was one of the first Kohanim Gadolim, and he was Kohan Gadol for like 40 years. Um, and in the Second Temple era, from about Mordechai till Shemon HaSadik is Anshe Knesset HaGadola, 120 great sages. Amongst them were prophets. And they're the ones who finalized the form of the sitter. It already existed. We've talked about that many times. It already existed. That's Anshe Knesset HaGadola. He says, they achieved purity and judgment and outlook on life, chiefly by tefillah and tehillah in two ways. In other words, Anshe Knesset HaGadola put together the sitter and they said, we can, we can give you a sitter, you dear friends, right? And <laughs> give ourselves a sitter that will give you a pure look at life. You can have an approach to living if you follow the steps in the sitter. And there are two main tools that we are putting at your disposal here. They didn't invent them, 
right? They structured them. What are the two main tools? Tefillah and Tehillah. Which is awesome how they also kind of sound alike because it helps you realize that they're a set. Okay. So how do these work? He says what they contain in this whole sitter is direct sayings concerning Hashem, the world, man, Israel, and the individual self. So one is Hashem does chesed, something like that. Okay, That would be a direct statement. Nice to see you. And the second way that they do that is by quoting sources from which our outlook is to be drawn. So there's the observable facts. Here's what Hashem does, or Hashem is the melech ha'olam. And the second piece is how do we then observe and think about what Hashem has done in the world and does in the world. And when they talk about that side of it, which is our reaction to Hashem in the world, for that, they look to people who came before us and before them, which is really a long time ago, right? Ajay Knesset said, well, let's see how the people before us who are greater than us, how did they observe the world? How did they react when they saw Hashem interacting with us? And then we're going to quote them. And that's why the sitter is almost all quotes. In the art scroll sitter, they usually have at the bottom of the page little footnotes, right? Is that an art scroll? Okay, so it'll have, like, at the bottom of every page, tons and tons of references telling you where different, sometimes it's three words, four words, that are like a snippet right out of a pasuk somewhere, right? Right That's that's why. The Anshay Knesset Sagdola, we're stringing together. They're saying, if we want to have a proper outlook on life, then let's learn from people before us who had a proper outlook on life. Okay, they weren't trying to introduce something new. So for the first one, for the direct sayings concerning Hashem, the world, man, Israel, individual self, they mainly used songs to Hillam from the lips of David Melech, who was born a shepherd, placed in a high position in life. He lived through the whole range of phases of inner and outer conflict and was therefore capable of understanding and describing Israel's national life in the spirit of Torah uttering the correct appraisal of every aspect of inspired song. So when you want to know, um, this seems to me like it's almost backward. Okay, could be I got it backward. Um, not sure. Okay, so for Tehillim, they take from David HaMelech. I mean, he wrote Tehillim, right? But for Tehillah, for this praise of Hashem that is based on experience, that comes from David HaMelech. Why? Because David HaMelech lived through more than anybody. He had any kind of experience anyone had. David HaMelech had, if not the identical experience, something that matches it so that he had to respond to it, which it's kind of interesting if you think about it, the value of having gone through an experience and how it changes you. The wisdom, the empathy, the, the, the process of coping or accepting or learning how to rise above, whatever it is that you come through it. Um, it, make, it could have made him not have empathy. Like, oh, I've done that. No big deal. I guess. Yeah. He was a very sensitive person. Right. That's pretty clear. It, it's almost like, you know, if you were David Amalek's mother, right, you would want to spare him all of this. But really, if he hadn't had that, he wouldn't be who he was which is food for thought, right? In terms of who we are, who our kids are, what we go through. It doesn't mean we wish for the hard things, but that there's a value and a richness and a depth that is developed in a person through the different experiences that we go through and how we grapple with them and how we come through them. And since he lived through the whole range of conflicts, he had inner conflicts, he had outer conflicts. I was listening to a very interesting sheer. Um, from Rabbi Eisman about David HaMelech and he was talking about how um, he actually talks about this also in a little book of his about Tehillim which I can't remember the name of the book but it has a beautiful night starry photograph on the front by Neil Fulberg that part I remember and he talks about how come the first king was Shaul. Okay, so we understand that that was temporary because anyway, he wasn't from Yehuda. But the first king was Shaul Hamelech, 
who's described as like as innocent as a one-year-old when he became king. He was such a righteous man. And it's important when you learn about Shaul to understand like Shaul was such a righteous man. He was so good. And even as a king, he made like one mistake that it came from the good side of him even. Like he was so good. And all the part about how he chased David and tried to kill him, mm-hmm. even David didn't hold that against him. Nobody held that against him. They understood that was part of, that was an affliction. Okay, the, the, the Navi describes it as a ruach ra, a, a, a bad spirit from God. He had that mental illness. And God put that on him, and that was the punishment. Meaning once Hashem said, that's it, I'm taking the kingdom away, that's when that started. Okay? The kingdom was given to David, it was taken away from Shaul, that's when that happened. He was such a righteous person. And he himself was appalled when his mind would come clear and he would come face to face with David again. right? And David would say, you know I love you and I would never hurt you. Shaul would always like break down and cry and say, I, I don't ever want to hurt you either. Like I don't understand what's happening to me. So he was an amazing person. David HaMelech did other sins. Okay, so the Gemara says, if you say that David sinned, you're really a sinner yourself. Like you don't, you don't understand what was going with him, how righteous he was. But in the end, like we see that the, he's called to task for more things than Shaul ever was. So what makes David better suited to being the beginning of a dynasty than Shaul? So there's the basic fact, which is like David is from Yehuda and Shaul isn't. But that doesn't mean Shaul couldn't have had like one of his sons be a ruler after him, or two, and then have it. He had very, very great sons, right? His son, Yonah's son, was David's best friend. They were, they were like brothers. And he, he proposes, and based on some very convincing sources, he says Shaul didn't really struggle to be good. Shaul was naturally really, really good. That's why he was like a one-year-old in his, as an adult. He, it just, he was really that good. David Amalek struggled every step of the way. Every, and he, he's open about it in Tehillim. It's not easy for him. A lot of the Prakam of Tehillim, you see, whether it's dealing with a, a problem or dealing with an inner problem like a Yetzirah, Every parak will start with, with the struggle, you know? And then he comes to some kind of resolution and reminds himself Hashem will help him and he's on the right track. He really struggled. And the fact that he, he didn't just come to him naturally and the fact that he struggled creates a kind of permanence to what he, had, what he became that lasts on in his children forever. Okay, we're still waiting for a Mashiach ben David to have another king from the house of David. That's, that is a tribute to the struggle. And it could be if we had seen these two men side by side. What Shmuel did, right? Hashem said to Shmuel, go to the house of Yishai and find a new king. And he went, he sees the first son, he says, oh, this man looks the part, right? He goes through all the sons and none of them are the right one. Hashem says, no, I'm not, no, 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 right? When he finally says, do you have any more kids? They're like, yes, David, but... He's like out shepherding. We weren't going to wait for him for dinner. That's what they say. And Shmuel says, well, we can't eat without him. Can you imagine? Like they're having a yantif meal, Rosh Chodesh meal. And he's like, we're going to wait for him. And he comes in. And when he comes in, and now Shmuel's like, okay, this must be it. Because now he told, Hashem told me he's picking one of these sons. And I've gone through all of them. None of them are the right one. And now they tell me there's one. It must be this one. And then he walks in. And he's like, no, that's, this can't be right. He's a Navi. Shmuel was a Navi. He says, this can't be right. This does not look like royalty. Royalty looks like Shaul. It's somebody who's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He has the bearing. He has the self-control. He has the, the quiet and the, this kind of like self-contained perfection that you can use as a role model. And then David comes in, and David's like, I don't know if David was small, but everyone was small compared to Shaul. Right, so he put on the on his armor later on, and it fit him. But that was a miracle. So, and he was ruddy. So he looked exactly like the ways that they described um, Asav. Yeah, like the whole, it just like it was all wrong. It just didn't look right. That's not what you think of as a king. And Hashem said, "No, that's a real king. This is a real king. A real king is not somebody that naturally just like everything is, you know." Uh, no problem. Yeah, like, 
I, that's not a put down to Shaul. Shaul was a great man. And his, his life is such a tragedy that it's, it's almost incomprehensible. The way that he died, he went to his death knowingly. He said, look, I, you know, there's not much else I can do at this point, so therefore at least I'm going to face, you know, whatever needs to be faced for the sake of the glory of God and the safety of the Jewish people bravely. And he knew he's never coming back. From Dublin, we learned so much about human nature, about friendship and loyalty and betrayal. And, and all of that is through the experiences that he had. So thank God we get to share in them a little bit. We get a little piece of it. Right? So anything we go through, that's what they... Anche Knesset Sagadola took from David HaMelech's to Helen. A, because of what he achieved in his, what's reflected in the Tehillim is what he achieved on the inside. It's his work to create an outlook and a relationship with Hashem through all of the struggling, not just in spite of the struggling. And the gift that it's written down and it's there for us, that's an incredible thing. Now, there's two David HaMelech. There's a David HaMelech that you see in Navi. And, and the stories of his wars and his battles and his achievements and his dominion and his children, right? And then there's this whole book of Tehillim where you see a whole inner self. When do you ever get that look into anything or anyone in Torah, right? I mean, that's just a remarkable gift to have that we have a book of Tehillim that goes along with, you know, Shmuel and Devrei Hayamim. Okay. And when we want to know about the other side, the Tefillah side, so Anche Knesset Sagadola took Torah. There's Tehillah and there's Tefillah. And by the way, he says, Tefillin are the tool for Tefillah. And Tehillim are the tool for Tehillah. Which is also a very fascinating place, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in Shema. All right. So David's life then exemplifies... I was thinking about this this morning. I had it in a big way, but also in a small way. The big way is um, some of what you see in today's culture, which is quite frightening, that's going on. It's not only in the United States, it's all around the world, which is that people are, some, some areas it's people who are coping with pressure that they're not accustomed to. And in some places, it's not so much that the pressure is great, but that people don't have the tools for coping. Um, you can attribute some of that to media and entertainment, whatever. I mean, I do, but that goes back to bread and circuses in Rome too. So <laughs> I'm not sure this is a novel problem. Um, and therefore, I just want to be comfortable and get through whatever I'm getting through. This is like a mentality, okay? And I want to be distracted from it. I don't want it to bother me. It's not about, it's just about like getting through it somehow with the least possible suffering or inconvenience or discomfort. But what that leads to can be a lot of evil. A lot of bad can come out from that when you have not just one person, but a society made of individual people who cannot stretch themselves outside of just getting through what they're getting through as well as possible. So then I had a small example of that. that I didn't actually witness it. It was just like a thought through my mind. So I'm coming from the parking lot out to the street, and there's a gate. So I held the gate. I, I walked through the gate, and I was running late, as you saw. I mean, I wasn't late late, but late enough. Not as early as I like to be. And I held the gate, my daughter came through, and there was somebody else coming behind us, but they were like six steps behind. So it's kind of like you could just let the gate go, and they could just open it. It's not even like you're coming through the unlocked side. It's not a big deal. It's just a courtesy that you're holding the gate. It's not really helping, especially. It doesn't slow someone down. And I thought, you know, that's really what it's all about, right? It's those choices. It's, well, since I'm in a hurry, since I have a pressure, I gotta like buckle down and just focus on taking care of my issue and not worry about the other person. Or is it still there that I'm still thinking about other people? I mean, that's really, <laughs> you know, what I'm looking at on this grand scale like and what's happening scale. in, yeah, like what's happening in, in Hungary and what's happening in France and what's happening, you know, and in the United States and all over the world. And, and it's a certain type of corruption, right? It's a certain type of corruption. That's a corruption. It's a corruption of inner strength. 
And that ability, can I look outside of myself or not? So this was like, like the tiniest example. Because really, it's not going to make so much difference, honestly. If the person ahead of you doesn't hold that gate coming from the Trader Joe lot out to Detroit, you don't even have to stop and unlock the gate. You just like lean on it and it, you, know, you push the handle, it opens. Even if your hands are full, you can do it with your elbow. Like it's not even if it, So the only value that it had was the value of me making a choice. And my choice is, am I self-centered because of my issues, mm -hmm. which were not so great. I mean, I was here five minutes before Shear. Like, it wasn't, I wasn't here 15 minutes before Shear. So how big was the pressure? It was only as big as I let it be, right? So am I thinking about myself or am I not thinking about myself? And I was a little bit shocked to realize that. I mean, I'm glad I held the gate, but like, it's a little scary to realize we're really all grappling with this constantly, constantly. all the time, right? I see it driving. I'm hungry, <laughs> I'm driving, I'm in a rush, I'm in whatever it is. I'm in, I'm in pain, I'm worried about something. And it's true, everyone is, we or all, you know. gratification. People say like, you know, look at other people, they all have their issues, we have to be understanding. It's true, everyone is dealing with our own issues. But what that means is that we're all really dealing with our own stuff. There's always an excuse to focus on just getting through what we're getting through. Always. But I think also in, in consonant with what you're saying is that I think what we're seeing around us in the world is an attitude of everything should go the way I want it to go. It's a lot of, yes, I agree with you. As There's a lot of pieces to it. And if, I don't, if I'm unhappy, then I can express myself in a way that makes other people know that I'm unhappy as opposed to... Okay, but to that's even... Take, now you've taken it another step. I'm just talking about, like, saying I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not doing anything. I'm just... It's a kind of right. passivity right. that comes... Right, of not getting involved. Right. Of not doing for other people because it's enough for me to just take care of myself. That's enough difficult... Right? right. I, I'm on purpose not going the extra step. Not because there aren't more problems in the world. There's a lot of problems in the world. Right. But there's a special kind of danger... To, a, to an attitude where we are not able to be there for other people because we're so busy worrying about ourselves. It's a big problem. So that's and that's, it's a kind so of greatness. It's first choice. It's a so choice. It's <laughs> choice. You, you remind me of like the, sort of a, is it like a marshal that they have with the difference between Gehenim and, you know, like with the people who are with their elbow. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like in heaven. Right. It's that old story, other. right? Yeah. The, the spoon hands. Okay. So David's life is this exemplar of <coughs> suffering and yet being able to rise above the immediate moment of his feelings. Not, not above it. To, to use it to stand on and see a bigger picture from there. That is a very, very, very hard thing to do. I, I don't, we can't even imagine the scope of what that means in David's life. We can't. But just in our own lives, what that means to be, like, why do we say to Hillel when we're in trouble? To connect to it. One of the things that we get out of, now the truth is, just saying to Hillel helps, even if you don't even know what you're saying, right? But there's a power of to which is this power of being in trouble. And from that place, expanding your mind and your thinking and your heart out, like ratcheting it open piece by piece by piece until you're able to see a picture that's a little bit bigger, that there's a God and he's running things and that's why this is happening. And right, he does love me, so there's more going on than what meets the eye. And how I respond to this is the challenge that's before me Right, that's it's not all the other. Just I'm saying that is a process. A process. I'm not saying it's the only one. That is a process of Tehillim that changes us. So when we say um, when we say Tehillim for someone who's sick, we say the the prayer asking Hashem to heal the person who's sick after we say the Tehillim, not before. I for years I didn't really know like which one. You know, okay. Why is that? Like because, sure. Yeah, like let's say we want to daven for someone who's yeah. not well. We say that little Yehi Ratzon right, right. after the Tehillim, not before. 
Right. The reason is that saying the Tehillim itself opens up, right, opens up gates to heaven. But that happens because of what happens to us when we say it. We're not the same. When you say Tehillim, you're not the same after. That's the time then that you daven. Okay, so there's a lot of facets to Tehillim. This is one of them, but this is such an important one. Because Even it's if you don't such really a understand what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. To, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, to, that's what I was saying. Tehillim has a power that is on its own. There's no question. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Today, what I was talking about was this particular aspect of Tehillim, which is uh, having somebody hold your hand and take you along with them w- through a process where you're stuck in a certain place, and David Amalek says, okay, here, I'm also stuck in this place. Now come with me when I get myself out of that place in my mind. It's not that he takes himself away from his pain. It's that he figures out an approach through the pain as to how to think wider. Can, you know, when you're under pressure, your, your whole view, like physically and emotionally, gets narrower. And David Amalek shows you how to open it up again. So he says, you could come with me, and I'll take you with me, and then you'll see how, how I get there. And he walks you through a path. That's an unbelievable thing. It's an unbelievable gift to him, just on, on a lot of levels. Okay. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, which uh, I saw Mrs. Blinkoff this morning, and she told me that Stacy Light's mother is very sick. She's just, yeah, had a very frightening diagnosis, and she's really not well. So she is Phyllis Bas Leona. May she have a Rufu Shalema. She has her grandchildren in the school. So I'm sure that's not such an easy time. Leona? Yeah. I don't know her mom, but their parents in the school. Okay. What's the first name? Phyllis. This is her mom. Okay. All right. So now, the role of this Hallel concept, Nehalelcha and Hashem is Mehulal. This bouncing back. We see how Hashem, what is happening to us, around us, and bouncing that back descriptively as praise to Hashem. What he has shown us is what we bounce back. So there's a couple of nice points here. One is a Malbim that Rabbi Goldberg brought in a shear a week or so ago. He said, well, Rabbi Goldberg did say this, but this is the Malbim saying it. Um, the Torah says, see, I have placed before you today the blessing and the curse and the blessing that you do the mitzvahs. So the Malbim says, the world is arranged such that there is a big world and there is a small world. Okay, we have a big world, which is an earth and a universe, and we have a small world, which is a human being. Rabbi Leff gives a mashal. He says a man is sitting and reading his magazine or his newspaper, and he kind of wants to relax. (laughs) So his son is like nudging him for something to do. So he tears out a page that's got a map of the world on it. And he tears it into like 100 little pieces. And he says, here you go. Here's a map of the world. And now it's a puzzle. And you put it together. And when you're done putting it together, then I'm going to read you a story. And he figures he has now bought himself quite a lot of time because this kid is five years old and doesn't know the map of the world. So he's got lots of time now to sit and relax. And 10 minutes later or five minutes later, the kid says, look, I finished. And the dad's like, how did you do that? (coughs) How did you put it together? The map of the world. And he says, oh, I I didn't look at that side. On the other side, there was a picture of a person. So I put the picture of the person together. And then the other side was done. (laughs) Okay, clever kid. Okay, it's a great visual. It's a great visual, okay. There is a model, and it's not so easy to say which is the model of which. Okay? There's one side of the coin, there's a human being, and the other side of the coin, there's a world. Not just a picture of a human being and a picture of the world. There's a world, and there's a person. And whichever one you build and put together, you have built the other one on the other side. Okay? So, that's not the Malbim's Marshal. That's Rabbi Zevlef's Marshal. But this is, corresponds to what the Malbim is saying. He says, the world is created in such a way 
that we have two worlds that really are arranged facing one another. Okay? He doesn't call them back-to-back like on the magazine, but you have these two worlds that are aligned with each other. You have a big world, which is the universe, and you have a small world, which is a person. In the same way that you can set up, and this is, one of, this is like a known thing, right? You can set up two musical instruments, particularly string instruments, but not only. Okay, so you can have a big harp, and you can have like a little sort of harplet, and you can set them up at the right distance from each other, which is going to be a function of the length of the strings. And if you set them up correctly, then when you play notes on the small instrument, the larger strings on the larger instrument will also hum and vibrate and make a tune that reflects what's being played on the small one. Okay, this, this, by the way, is true. <laughs> it's not just a nice image. Okay? Because the vibration that you create with the string, it, it has harmonics. So with a harp, you have pretty complicated harmonics. You have a lot of different ones going on. There's some instruments that play just like kind of almost one. Violins, you know, have the string instruments tend to be more complex. And it's a function of the length of the string. That's how you tune it, right? You adjust the length. So if you have another string nearby that's tight and that is a multiple, a full multiple of the first string and where the harmonic of the, where the frequency matches, then it will vibrate, that frequency that pa- as it passes through the air will vibrate the strings of the other instrument. Okay, and where, where it aligns and can go completely, then you'll get some tone out of it. It's pretty quiet, you have to listen for it, but it's there. Okay. So, what the Torah is telling us is that the bracha and klala in the big universe, in the big, big world, depends on the bracha and the klala that is emitted by the little world of people. I love when you do things that reflect Rabbi Goldberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I said. This is his source sheet. Totally he just did this a week or two ago. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. I, I think I said that. I, I'm sorry. It's in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't come up with this source. I didn't find the source oh, even on my that. own. I try and find sources on my own, too, but if Robert Goldberg shows one, then yeah, that's what so we should good. do. Yeah, yeah. Is the first one the little world or the big world? The bracha goes first to the... The little world. The little world. Yeah. Okay. But it comes out from the people. So Hashem says, I'm giving before you the bracha and the klala. You have to play the bracha and the klala through your actions and your decisions and your choices. When you do the mitzvot, you are playing, you're plucking notes. You're making a choice. And what you create goes out like sound waves. And it emanates out. And it's not just that somebody could hear it. It actually resonates and it creates its own harmonies and echoes in everything around you. The bracha is that you will listen. The bracha itself is that you listen to the mitzvot of Hashem. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go there because I think that's an extra point. This, this core point about the two instruments lined up with each other is really the concept of hollow. Whichever direction you start. I mean, the Malbim is talking about something. It's what we would call Isarusa de la Sata. We Kabbalists would call it Isarusa de la Sata. Come across this. Arousal from below. With the awakening, the initiation of this bouncing back and forth of the echo begins with a call from below. You can have a call from above, and then it echoes the other direction, right, back and forth. So the sort of a resonance that begins with a call from below and then continues to echo is the small instrument that then brings out the voice of the large instrument. And that is the way the Torah works, and that is the way the universe works, which I think helps give us a perspective, because we can feel like, why would it matter what I do? I'm very, very small, and if I get my head wrapped around any, any extent of the, of the largeness of the universe, then it doesn't seem like anything I do could possibly matter. So I could focus on, well, just the fact that I do it matters, it matters to God, he's equally concerned about the small as the big, and that is true. This is telling us something more. It's that even if you're very small, you actually have an impact on everything around you. 
Your sound keeps moving out. Okay. So now this is Rav Hirsch on the sitter, on Baruch Shamar. And he, he's talking about why do we have this Baruch Shamar? Why do we have this Psuke de Zimra? Why are we singing here? What is this Hallel process accomplishing? So there's all these truths that we impress on our conscience again and again, preparing once more to proclaim the Tehillos from our national hymnal, the collection of hymns of praise that sing the manifold ways in which God has revealed his glory to us through mighty deeds. Baruch, faithful obedience to God, the solemn resolve, which every Tehillah should engender within our hearts in ever new inspiration. So that's piece number one. Piece number one is, it's not enough to just sing about it. (laughs) The concept of just singing in gratitude is not enough. And honestly, you can see that. You can see there are, I know people and you see people who are searching for a spiritual high, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes that involves a physical high, sometimes it doesn't. But it, it might involve whatever it is that makes you feel lifted up and good. Mm-hmm. And Rehearse speaks very strongly, not, not against that, right? Maybe it's the meditation or the music or the, the community. It's, it's not that we're against that. It's that that is not a goal. That is a means to a goal. And when it ends with that, then the inspiration passes and you're exactly the same as you were before. You have not changed. Okay, so the search for spirituality, the search for meaning, the search for that being picked up when you don't realize that it has to go beyond just feeling inspired, it it becomes deadening because over and over again, you basically get crashed back down, and eventually that's, that's really disappointing. Okay, so instead what has to happen is that every tehillah, so every time you echo the sound back and forth, right, that needs to have, that needs to move your dial one notch. <laughs> what does that look like when the dial moves a notch? That looks like baruch. The resolve that I am, remember what the word Baruch means, may your will be implemented through me. Mm-hmm. It's recognizing that Hashem has given me bracha and everything he has given me is something that I can, can and should and require in order to give it back to him. He gives me everything I need to be able to do for him. Miyad from your hand is everything, David Melech said. Miyad from your hand we give you. So he hands to us in order that we can dedicate it back. So if every time I have a new realization of inspiration and I feel loved and I I love back, it's not just the spiritual high of it. It then becomes concretized as, so what can I do for you? That feeling of, therefore, I am rededicated with myself, with my gifts, with whatever I have, then it's not wasted there's actual progress through those echoes. And in this way, it engenders in our hearts ever new inspiration. We are to become a blessing to his will and his rule on earth. We are to render in full the contribution which he expects of us so that all of our activities, great and small, should further his supreme sovereignty here and below. And our lives may shape all things so as to be pleasing to him. In other words, it's not just in our hearts What we're doing here with Tehillim is we're causing our hearts to resonate in tune with Hashem's resonance to us, and from there, causing our actions as well to change and resonate and become a reflection of God's actions. So that was something we were starting with in Brachos with our actions. What we've done now is added another layer We've gone from the physical and added on the emotional now, the heart. And letting the heart now feed and build so that we have now a richer, it's a richer contribution to the relationship. And it's not only the dedication of the physical because I appreciate it, but it's now coming from a place where I am moved and motivated and I want it 
because it's, it's something inside of my heart that wants to do that. But it's, it's not that we've now left the body behind and the physical behind. It's that we've recruited it and built onto it. And this is this concept of building the four worlds and of, of Yaakov having his dream, right? And in his dream, he sees Malachim Olam Viyordinbo. Angels are going up and down on it. Why are they going up and down? They should be coming down and up. I mean, according to our understanding, which makes no sense anyway, because like down, I don't know, is heaven up? I'm not really sure, right? Okay. But if you read it as Bo, him, which you can, okay? So now he sees Malachim are going up and down him. He's the ladder with his feet on the ground and the head in the heavens. You can't take your feet off the ground. His feet are on the ground. His head is in the heavens. And now there's all these forces that are coming up and down. They start at the bottom. It starts with the brachos and works our way up and builds upon it. And it's like a ladder. You can't get to rung three if you are missing two and one because you can't get there, right? So each one builds on top of the other and uses the other one. And so that you're using all of the steps at once. And that is our process. And the primary... So is Tehillim like the outermost, or the first rung? The first rung is brachos. It's the physical world. It's saying, oh my, like my hands work, my eyes opened. There's, I have clothing. There's, look at the world. There's, there's sun and sky and so maybe to, life Tehillim and... Tehillim the hand feels? <laughs> Tehillim is the second step. Oh, okay. It's really the second step. It speaks to the heart. It speaks to heart, and there's no. We can't say any one of these steps is more important exactly than another. They're all necessary, and this is, you know, in the same way that a person's physical physical reality is important and their emotional reality is important. We don't deny either one of those. It's more than that. We say it was created, and therefore it's necessary. Is there a distinction between Tehillah and Tehillim? Rav Hirsch said, Tefillin is a tool for Tefillah. Tehillim is a tool for Tehillah. Uh-huh. Right. It's a great line. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Can you say it one more time? Tefillin is, is a tool for Tefillah, and Tehillim is a tool for Tehillah. So it's a tool. It allows us to become that resonance and within our own hearts. Okay. Time for one more. must have been feeling very inspired when I marked this one, I guess. <laughs> That's way beyond that. I wonder what I thought I understood. No. It must have been something really awesome. Whoa. Okay. Uvashiri David Avdecha. With the, through the songs, through the songs of David, your servant. So Rav Hirsch talks about these last, the last part of, um, of Tehillim, which includes Ashrei and includes a lot of what we have. I mean, these last prakim that we have, which are in Sukkot Zimra, are really the conclusion of Tehillim altogether. Right? Kol Halalka. You repeat it twice, the last verse, because it's like closing a book. You like read the last verse twice. Okay. He says, these six concluding chapters of the book of Tehillim are the most important gift with which David's divinely inspired spirit has enriched the collection of hymns that Israel treasures so greatly. He's putting a special emphasis on these last five, six prakim of Tehillim. That if, if Tehillim is this huge gift to us, then these last prakim, which are Imsuke de Zimra, are the biggest gift of the gift, the best part. Under the title of Psuke de Zimra, I'm reading now from his commentary on Tehillim. Under the title of Psuke de Zimra, they constitute an essential component of our daily prayer book. Our sages attach so much significance to the content of this Tehillah Ledavid in particular. He means Ashrei. Okay? It just doesn't start with the words Ashrei. Uh, you know that, right? The first, we have Ashrei Yoshrei Vesecha Odi Halulukhasela, Ashrei Ha'am Shekachalo, Ashrei Ha'am Shehashem Alokav. Those verses are from other prakim. 
That parak, it's in Tehillim. That parak starts with Tehillah David, Arumimcha Hashem, Hamelech Vavar Hashem That's really the beginning of the parak, okay? Which is why it starts with only one olive, not three. But there's two other olives looking at it, okay? Chachamim attach so much, so much significance to the content of this Tehillah David in particular that they have stated. If you say Ashrei three times a day, which is how it shows up in a sitter, okay, so you have Ashrei um, twice in Shachris, there's an Ashrei here in Pesukah Zimra. there's an Ashrei in the same position as you step down coming out, and there's an Ashrei in Mincha. Okay, so someone who says it three times a day is assured that he will be worthy <coughs> in the world to come. That, that's pretty awesome, okay? That doesn't mean it's like you tie a string of ashray, you know, a red string around your arm, and like magically you're an olam haba. What it means is there's something that happens to you when you say it. It's transformational. It's transformational. Something happens to you by saying it. Its significance is indicated by the alphabetical arrangement of verses, because that means there's something complete happening here. There's something that fills an entire world or changes an entire world. That's what, whenever you have olive base order. That's what that represents. It's complete. Uh-huh. It's all the components, it's like all the atoms, right, that you need to build whatever needs to be built. And the statement, poseach es yodecha lechol which is like this fundamental, you know that that's the main pasuk in Asher, right? A lot of Sidorim will say, make sure to concentrate special over here. It's really easy to get lost in Asher. <laughs> poseach is where you gotta pull yourself back. Oh, is my watch wrong? I didn't realize, okay. No, we're, we're okay though, okay. What this poseach tells us is the main theme of this parak, the universal order of God providing for every living thing. The general awareness of God, the concepts of Hashem's might, the gvuros, Right, because remember we said Pesukah Zimra is really about that power, the overwhelmingness, the awesomeness, the Yerushalayim, the Izuz Norosav, His awesome might which none can withstand. It's rooted above all in the realization that all human action and achievement is limited in scope, and there's a higher power which reigns and towers above all. It has the power even to withhold and even to destroy. But most men still lack the awareness and understanding of the fact that the growth and welfare of all living things is dependent on the inexhaustible goodness and loving kindness of the same power, which is always ready to give. I'm going to skip ahead because it's late. To David's spirit, the opposite is true. The opposite meaning that people often only recognize the hand of God when they're stumbling and falling. When things are fine, it's like what Sarah was saying, right? Like everything should be the way I want it to be, so then you don't notice it. It's only when it's a problem. But to David's spirit, the opposite is true. He views the falling of man as man's own doing. Men fall because of their folly and because of disobedience to God. But the ability to remain upright in the midst of the vicissitudes of life, every moment of health and happiness, spiritual, physical development, growth, every new free gladsome breath they draw, they owe to the loving kindness of the Lord, who provides for all things living and is ready at all times to grant new life. The greatness of God is revealed not in the death and decay, but in the growth and the life. So the content of Tehillah, of these six prakim of Tehillim, the content is the revelation of God's greatness through his mighty acts in the general and individual aspects of his guidance and rule, through which he provides for the world, for mankind and Israel. There's one piece here, which Rav Hirsch says, but I, he doesn't say it in the language that we necessarily hear it, which is, coming back to that idea that I said about the contrast between Shaul and David. The falling is because of our own weakness. That's true. But it is dependent on that falling that we become strong. He says it here. He just, he says it in a kind of different way. Okay. It is dependent on that same power that Hashem is overpowering. And Hashem does make us weak. And we do fall. And we do require his help. 
David HaMelech is David HaMelech because he had the struggle. And having the struggle means that there were more failures. He has, there's no question that the, he's called out more. Shaul HaMelech did like one thing wrong. And, and we could be sympathetic to it. With David, you sometimes look and you're like, how did he get there even? Like, right? And we don't understand it. But it was the process of the falling down and standing up again and holding into it. And that's, that's what grows us and makes us different. I'm sure Shaul had his own process of growth. But it, there isn't that kind of development. He was like so perfectly developed to start with. But this is what this is what. But this is what's valued. This is what's valued. Right? They were both FFP. This is this is where the value. Sometimes some people just have it easier than others. I I wonder. I think. I wonder. You know, when you know what other people go through. The only thing is, some people seem to have it much easier when they're young. Now, they're having their own little battles. They just may be in very small areas, so they don't look so important. And maybe they're not experienced as such a big deal. Maybe it's just holding the gate for somebody or not, so it's not such a big deal. But sometimes when you get a little older, you look back and you see you could feel sorry for people. (coughs) An 18-year-old who never really had to overcome any difficulties. Right. Right. Any real social challenges, anything, you know, thank God, no financial, no help. But you look at them as an 18-year-old, and they're stunted. Yes. Right. They haven't yes. really started to grow. They will, because God loves us, and he doesn't leave us in that state well, forever. eventually. Yes. Right, eventually. He doesn't mm-hmm. leave us there forever. That's true. But look at That's the kind of people who are solid people, and the ones that you can rely on, the ones who are thinking more deeply about stuff. They've been through something. Right. Yeah. So that's a sign of love, then. That's yeah. No blade of grass grow, grows. We grow. You know, that's a different part. Torah. Now we really are late. But this idea of makos, I heard a beautiful Torah about makos because we have the ten plagues, right? So, if the punishment, I think this was quoting the Gra, that the punishment of the Mitzrayim was at the Red Sea. The punishment of the Mitzrayim was not the makos in Mitzrayim. The makos are described as the finger of God right. and the Red Sea as the hand, right? So the Vilna, I, I'm pretty sure I heard this name in the Vilna Gaon. I didn't see it. What is a finger? You don't punish someone like what, like with a finger. You wag a finger. You uh-huh. point or you point at a problem, right? right. The finger was the warning. The hand could be the punishment. The makos was a warning to them. And that tells us that the word makah what we understand the maka to be a hit is something that's corrective. It could be ignored, but it's corrective. So this idea that there's not even a blade of grass that doesn't, that doesn't grow without a malach hitting it, it's the same word, maka, hitting it and saying grow, right? That's not a punishment. It doesn't mean it's comfortable. <laughs> Makos were definitely not comfortable. Sorry, that is the most interesting notebook I have ever seen. <laughs> I know, I was thinking that too. Look at the spirals. Oh, my God. Where did you oh. get this? This is 